Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. Today we meet Kaya Sadowski, author and a founder and lead instructor at Valkyrie Western Martial Arts Assembly in Vancouver, Canada. Kaya talks to us about online teaching, training culture and safe spaces. This episode was recorded on Instagram Live 30 July 2020. Hello. Hello. So is it Sadowski or Sadowski? Yes. Yeah, it's uh in in Poland it would actually be Sadowska. Um Sadowska, yeah. but yeah, but uh because I immigrated to an English speaking country and it confused people. Uh, everyone in my family, including myself and my mother, just goes by Sadowski now. <laughs> okay, Sadowski, okay, we'll stick with that. So, interview AMA number 30. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, it's really lovely to have you here. Um, my first, my traditional question now is how has lockdown been? <laughs> I imagine that becomes a bigger and bigger question as time goes on. It does. At first, it's like, yeah, well, I've managed to stock up on toilet rolls, and then it's like, you know, existential yeah. crisis, and now it's like, how can I run classes? So, you know, from a sort of personal to a professional perspective, uh, how's it? How's it? How is it going? I I'm gonna go with okay. Um, I think. I think. We all kind of went through similar similar stages of coping where it started with like panic and disbelief and maybe a bit of denial and that insistence on like productivity because you're supposed to have all of this spare time. Uh, and then there's like a homesteading phase where I, everybody in my social circle was baking sourdough. Yeah. Um, I, I went mad with the plants. My garden has, I have a, like a little, little wee garden on my balcony and it's doubled in size since the pandemic started. Uh, I know, I made I know you like your plants, yeah. I do, you yeah. Uh, daily walks. <laughs> yes, and, and daily walks have been an absolute, absolute lifesaver in all of this. Um, there was definitely an existential crisis. I think that's happened to all of us. I'm not ashamed. Uh, <laughs> and and currently, uh, for the last month, we've kind of been figuring out how to reopen Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, so the school has been uh, theoretically running this entire time. We've been doing online classes. Um, we shifted to, to using Zoom pretty much immediately, and we've still been running those six days a week. Um, so it's been really nice in that we've been able to maintain our community. Um, and actually kind of grow it in funny ways. Uh, you know, I, I taught class this past Tuesday, and one of my students was from Vancouver, <laughs> and most of the others were from the East Coast of the United States. Um, wow. So there's, there's been this neat kind of um, 
shifting of like who our students are and who our community is. Mm. Um, and Valkyrie, Valkyrie's physical space is not the largest. Uh, our training floor is maybe like 800 square feet and it's quite long and narrow. Um, so the thing that we've been really dealing with since we started trying to reopen is uh, how on earth we can keep people safe uh, and, and, you know, maintain, maintain physical distance. Um, mm -hmm. So currently we've, we're just running private lessons. Um, we're letting people come in one or two at a time. Uh, we, we keep our distance when we can, we mask up when we can't. Uh, and we've, taken wrestling off the menu for the moment um which is which is a shame because oh god i miss yeah. it uh yeah. but it's been it's been really lovely to be able to to engage with people in person um even though like teaching online has been a really neat challenge it's been really cool to to try to figure out um, now, I was going to say, you were one yeah. of the few clubs that were doing this before it became essential. And I, I thought, as, as a bystander, sort of thing, thought, wow, how, can you, how on earth can you teach HEMA online? But, of course, everyone has to do it now. Yeah. Uh, but you guys were, you guys were ahead of the curve. So you, ha you must have, like, thought, well, thank, you know, thank goodness we've already prepared ourselves. We know what to expect and how these mm -hmm. things go. So... I guess you were just already in that in that mode when uh, it became essential or you had to, I don't know, expand your repertoire, as it were. Yeah, it was something we'd kind of been considering because we do have a we have we have a student body that 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 has a lot of people that have, you know, moved away and aren't able to, to train with us in person. Uh, and every time we go out to events, we kind of collect occasional students from a distance. Um, and we really wanted to make sure that those people would be able to be part of our community. Uh, so online teaching is something that we've kind of been looking at and trying to figure out how to do reasonably. Uh, and, then, and then the upshot of the pandemic has been that we've had this kind of four or five, I've lost track of time, this many months uh, <laughs> experiment in doing just that and really starting to understand um, the limits of what we can do as well as the ways that we can kind of use the medium in our favor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a good chance to, to focus on things that we, we don't do as much of. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my teaching is very play oriented. It's a lot of throw two people together and uh, have them figure things out on their own, have them do active problem solving, have them do experimentation, so on. Um, and that's a lot easier to do when you can use your bodies uh, and, and, and their interaction with each other. And it's been really interesting to figure out how to take that and make it like a solo process. Yeah. Um, and so I've been... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the arc that I've taken, which is probably not the only one, um, is uh, I started with really trying to, trying to figure out which skills um, and which kind of senses make people good at that kind of thing. Um, so one of the things that I, that I started with was uh, spending a bunch of time helping people kind of build their, their proprioceptive and their interoceptive senses, so like their idea of what their body is doing. Um, 
because the better you understand where your body is in space, the better you can tell kind of what it's doing, where it is, how it's interacting with the world around it, the easier it is to take correction, the easier it is to learn new physical skills, uh, and the faster that whole process of experimenting and problem solving goes. Um, so we spent, uh, I spent a lot of time doing things like uh, starting with really silly games, like close your eyes and uh, touch your nose with your hand and see if you don't miss or, or getting people to do the same thing with, with touching their fingers together. Uh, and then playing with a bunch of internal focus stuff to get people to really understand the, the relationship between like how their brain maps where their body is and where it actually is. Um, so we did a whole bunch of weird experimental move around a bunch with your eyes closed stuff and then move around a bunch with your eyes open. Um, we played with, uh, we played a bunch with sensory input because like one of the reasons why contact and touch and working with another person helps so much with, with proprioception is you get that external feedback of touch. You're not just trying to be like, Oh yes, I've put my hand up here and it is, you know, however many inches from my head and, and so on. You, you've got something physical to push back against that. Uh, so we did things like playing with body position while lying on the floor where you get that feedback from, from the ground pushing back against you um, or playing with, with, with pressure and contact with yourself. Um, and then from there, we've been doing a lot of, um, of working directly with the text, which I normally do. You've cut out. Sorry, oh, cut no. out. Wait till you come back. There we go. Um, yeah. I got you to the point where you said working with the texts. Yeah, so um, I've been, uh, uh, the two that I'm working on the most right now are uh, Godinho's uh, Two Swords in particular, Ooh. because it's great. Uh, <laughs> a little bit problematic in a small apartment. Uh, my yeah. walls have taken some damage, but I'm making it work. <laughs> uh and then um, my big love is Morazzo. And, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, one of the things that we've been doing in class recently, for example, is um, working through a lot of his guards uh, with both the sword in one hand and with, uh, with the two-handed sword and building up a sense of movement from those. Um, so doing solo work where you kind of, you use the guards as like, freeze frames or waypoints along the path of a movement um, and figure out if I want to, if I want to flow smoothly, if I want to work through, you know, consecutive series of cuts or, or transitions between cuts and thrusts and so on, because Morato is all about keeping moving. Um, how do I use the guards to kind of guide me through that and give me a point of reference for where I am in space and what I can do? Um, and that's a fun, thinky problem-solving project that you can do as an individual. Um, and that kind of builds on a lot of the proprioceptive work we were doing earlier. Um, so that's, that's some of what we're messing around with right now. So is that something that you would do as a grouping online class, or is that something you give your students to do as homework in their own time? Uh, we do it as a group. Um, what I find really valuable for those kinds of exercises 
is giving people opportunities to experiment solo and then coming back and basically doing show and tell. Yeah. Uh, because inevitably what I find is that everybody has different answers. Um, even if people come to very similar conclusions about uh, what kinds of movements they find the most efficient uh, or, or how certain guards fit together, the way that they arrive at those solutions is going to be different. Mm -hmm. um, and listening to people talk through their process of figuring something out or listening to what they emphasize in their answers, what they consider the most important, um, is really useful for, for building your own problem-solving uh, yeah. systems. And I think that's where it's really useful in group classes to do this work is I can ask the same question, get eight different answers that all kind of lead in the same direction, um, but listening to those things work through together kind of enriches everybody's experience of understanding that. And when I then throw the next problem at them, rather than just having one way of approaching it, they've suddenly got seven additional ones. Um, so it's really kind of playing with people, people's brain plasticity on that stuff. This is, this is where HEMA differs from other martial arts, isn't it? Because we ex, we, there is this expectation that if you are a member of this community, you're not just there to learn the movements and perform them for show or use them in uh in combat in practice mm -hmm. or uh whatever there is an expectation that you will um encumber yourself with the task of uh uncovering the meaning of what was written in these books mm -hmm. so it's there's like a uh sort of price of entry if you like is is not just you know if you want to get to play with swords You've got to, you've got to put. A, we need to borrow your brain a bit, and you've got to help us unpick this mystery and do a bit of investigation with us. Um, not just because there is just so much to to go through, and like you say, you ask what you ask, you give someone a problem, you get, you know, everyone will give you a different answer. Mm -hmm. But it, all the time you're getting a, these answers, it's still making the picture clearer. Um, yeah. But also, it's it's like a lot of schools I know they kind of go to their students right read the texts um and the students like who have maybe never been to martial arts before or have been to martial done martial arts before hang on Bob we've got to read these texts kind of thing mm -hmm. but the idea is that it, it that it, you want to try and spark an interest um a curiosity about the the work that was uh put into these these um these books, these manuals to try and sort of, you know, I think Stephen King said that writing is a form of telepathy. It's like mm. one person's head onto paper, out of the paper, into my head. You know, it's across time and space, a form of telepathy. So it's trying to sort of like throw as much brain power at it to try and make it as, as close as we can get. You know, we're never going to get it exactly how, how it was because unless we can you know talk to those people um so I, it's it's interesting isn't it and it, it's how do you get the students involved and like making it part of uh, like a playful scenario like mm -hmm. let's collaborate and make it a fun thing is a really nice way i think of getting people involved and interested in like what i call like the cold face of hema which is taking a book and trying to extract the information from it and make it a physical movement 
Yeah, I love um, I love the framing that you've set up there of the fact that in HEMA, learning has to be a very like active and collaborative process. Um, it, it often often uh, I think the student teacher relationship gets framed as like a very passive one. Um, in in our culture, where the teacher provides knowledge and the students sort of passively absorb it yeah. and and then they have to go no, yeah exactly and uh oh my god does that not work um <laughs> with <laughs> you know in 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 HEMA in particular I think because on the one hand as you've said there's the the sources are still so um we're still just barely so scratching the surface of them yeah. there's so little that we know the idea that like an instructor is going to be a source of knowledge that just like mm. transmits into the students is ridiculous because we don't know enough. We're yeah. still constantly in the process of discovering and, and reinterpreting, you know, I am, um, I was teaching, I was teaching Godino's two swords this summer, um, working, working on it uh, with a student out uh, out in the DC area and halfway through what we were doing, I completely changed my interpretation of several of the pieces because a couple things fell into, into place in my head. And I was like, ah, oh, no, we've been doing this wrong. Um, and I think, and I think a really important thing for students of HEMA is to teach them to embrace that process, uh, to show them that, um, like how cool is it that we're basically doing live science? We are researching through our training, through our movements. We're not preserving a fixed tradition that somebody figured out 200 years ago and is now carrying forward. Mm. We're, we're making this up as we go along. And, and that's not to say that we're pulling it out of our asses, but we are, <laughs> we're all learning together. Um, yeah. and, and I love the idea uh, and something I try to embrace in my own teaching uh, as an instructor is being kind of like the lead student on things is going, all right, I've been, I've been doing this learning longer than you guys. Mm -hmm. I have more skills related to learning and research and I have more experience to build that on. So let me share that with you. Uh, but this process of researching, this process of taking words on a page and turning them into a physical puzzle um, mm. is something that is accessible to all of us. It's something that everybody can participate in, and it's something that everybody should participate in uh, for the sake of both their growth as a martial artist and, and in order to kind of contribute to our shared discipline, which, which really comes back to what you were saying, that there's a, there's a buy-in to HEMA that is, you know, what you're doing has to kind of enrich our knowledge of the arts or expand our sense of what we're doing um, to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah. And, I, and I really like it's that. Same, it's the same as like if you turn up at an event, you don't just buy, buy your ticket. You pay for it. You pay for it with labor as well, because everyone there is mm -hmm. a volunteer. They're not being paid to be there and serve you. It's like I bought I spent money to be here, but I'm also going to, you know, put the mats out or whatever, because yeah. that's how events run. They rely on people's help and stuff. So it's, it's, it's kind of all connected. Um, yeah, we are we are twenty five minutes in. <laughs> you're my first time, question. <laughs> time doesn't exist. <laughs> um, right, my next question um, is: You're obviously you're a business owner and a professional humor instructor. This isn't a hobby for you. This is your this is your profession. 
um how did you how did that come about where how did you come to this place um gradually and then all of a sudden <laughs> um so i i've been a teacher of some kind for a pretty long time right. um I, uh, I've, I've been kind of in various physical arts since I was a small child. I started figure skating when I was seven um, and got thrown into peer coaching programs when I was like 12 or 13 and was kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're a preteen and you're teaching like six-year-olds how to put one foot in front of the other kind of thing. Um, and then when I was in uni, I got very involved in the climbing and mountaineering community. Um, and I did, uh, through, through the outdoors club at my school, I did, um, a bunch of volunteer instruction around, uh, rock climbing basics, uh, glacier travel, safety, crevasse rescue, that kind of stuff. Um, and around the same time I got a job in a climbing gym where I was also teaching people how to climb professionally. Um, so my first kind of physical instructor job came about when I was about 18 um and then doing this all in, your life, basically yeah, yes, yeah uh when I was uh and in uh in university I did a I did a master's degree in in English literature and I was focused specifically on um medieval chivalric romances uh so I've also been a nerd professionally for a very long time um and and I was a I was a teaching assistant um when I was doing when I was in grad school and I was extremely fortunate that um, I was the only medievalist in either the English or the history departments at my school at the time. Um, and usually if you're a master's student in English, all the work you do as a TA is you mark papers for the like giant first year English courses that everyone at the school has to take. Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't really get to do much teaching and it's miserable drudgery. Um, but because I was the only specialist in my field, I kept getting loaned out to higher level courses. So I did a lot of uh, like 300 and 400 level classes and I ended up teaching English medieval studies and history over the course of, of those years, just because they, they needed people. So um, I got to co-teach, I got to run seminars, I got to lecture. And really between that and the work that I was doing with climbing really came to realize that teaching was my thing. Um, and even when I ultimately left academia and realized that that wasn't for me, uh, I, I had to keep teaching. Um, so when I started uh, martial arts, which was back in 2010, uh, at the beginning of the year, so just over a decade ago now, um, I again kind of fell into teaching as soon as it became a viable option. Um, and when... When my friends Courtney and Randy uh, started started wanting to to build a school together, um, I was there. I was one of their first students for for the first year or so of the school, and then and and was just like itching to step up and do more. Uh, and when we decided that we needed a more structured way of bringing beginners in, um, when we needed some kind of a, an intake program, I basically went, I would like to run this piece. Uh, and, I, and I built a beginner's curriculum uh, for us. And then 
And then the school kept growing, and we realized that we really wanted to make a go of it as um, as a business with its own space, uh, because because there are limits on what you can do when you're you know renting a hall from a community center or or a dance studio yeah. for a couple hours a week. Uh, so much of community happens not just in the classroom, but in like the space around it when people can come in and hang out. Uh, when people can stay after class and work on their own things, where you have a space where people can come together to learn. Um, and, and also uh, finding space to train in Vancouver is horrible, and we wanted to, to be able to offer that to other people as well. So once we decided that we needed a space, you know, capitalism demanded that we then have a business as well, effectively. <laughs> um, unfortunately, none of us are independently wealthy. I would, I would have loved to just have a patron. <laughs> exactly. Um, so at that point, Courtney and I just went, well, I guess we're doing this, and, uh, and incorporated the school, and the rest is, uh, is history. Um, and so it's been about the... five years. Five years. Twenty. Wow. Yeah, 20, 2015, um, we got the space, we got the keys to the space in April. Uh, we officially opened in October. Um, so we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of Valkyrie being a school, uh, a physical school, which is um, kind of surreal. I honestly, I've often wondered if we were going to make it this far. <laughs> Quick question. This is what I always wonder about professional HEMA instructors, right? Or anyone who makes a profession out of their passion, do you ever mm -hmm. hate HEMA? There are days where I just don't want to deal with it at all. Well, you know, it is, it is, it is that thing where no matter how much you love something, there are days where you're just like, I'm fucking done with this. Um, it's 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 the same, you know, no matter no matter how much I might love my partner, there are days where I just don't want to talk to them and don't want to spend time with them. And we might have a fight or something. And my relationship with Hema is very much the same. Yeah, so uh, with a child, I guess it's like, I love you so much. Yeah. But you're an asshole today. Can you just go in another room? <laughs> exactly. Could you just not please? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So we got another. I'll just ask you a, an, another quick question before I hand it over mm -hmm. to the. We got a lot of people watching, and uh, there's been some comments going on. Uh, I'll come to those in a moment. But my next sort of thing I want to cover with you is your your brilliant book, Fear is the Fear is the Mind Killer. That's from June, isn't it? That line, isn't that? Ah, uh, uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So Fear is the Mind Killer. I've just started reading it, um, and and I love it. Um, and lots of people uh, in particularly like groups like on Facebook groups like uh, HEMA World Domination, which is a group for HEMA instructors where they hang out and chew the fat and argue it and come up mm -hmm. with ideas about teaching and stuff. I often see it quoted in there and referred to in there. So I, I recommend to anyone who, who's thinking about teaching HEMA to get their hands on this because it's, it's got lots of really interesting insights and information. So uh, I've only just started, but... Um, I think it's a good book for whether you're a student or, or an instructor, but particularly for instructors, because it's about imparting information to people. Um, I guess it was written after your sort of initial experience as 
an instructor and put then again you say you've been an instructor since you were 12 basically but I mean as a particularly for HEMA yeah. um and you you've you, you know you've obviously done your research into what works and what doesn't um and it, it what I what I really like about it is that the idea that people need to be comfortable with failure and mm -hmm. getting things wrong because if you're not failing then you're not you're not learning it's 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 that being able to um not do things perfectly like practice something perfectly over and over again it's mm -hmm. being able to deal it's being able to do an action in a whole variety of situations you know every speed uh, any opponent any kind of pressure you, ha you have to be able to adapt uh what you're doing to the situation and make it work uh, and the only way you can learn how to do that is to be thrown into lots of weird situations mm -hmm. and and do it so just just quickly tell us um what inspired you to write it and what was the motivation um so i think i think one of the biggest things that really um made me want to put that down on paper and made me want to write a book uh is that it was the thing that i needed most uh, in the sense that I am a recovering someone had written this for me, yeah. <laughs> um, like, I, uh, the degree to which I am a recovering perfectionist uh, mm. is that I am still, I'm still monstrously hard on myself. I still get really, really stuck in, it, if it's not perfect, it doesn't count. Um, mm. And one of the really fun side effects of having a written book about how valuable failure is, is that... Uh, your friends and partners can spitefully quote it back at you when you're being a horrible perfectionist. <laughs> and, oh dear, you've made a rug for your and, <laughs> and I have had it thrown back in my face. It's like, hmm, what, was, uh, what was the name of that chapter again, Kaya? <laughs> um, and, and I mean, it helps. Um, but but more seriously, I think um, I felt like there was a gap in how we talk about um, learning in HEMA in that we sort of mm. don't in, in a lot of formalized ways. Uh, there are so many books that uh, out there in HEMA that are interpretations of material uh, that are, you know, here is my understanding of, of this manuscript or, or this body of work. Um, some folks have, have done a bit of writing on, on teaching. Guy Windsor uh, comes to mind. Um, but for the most part, the teaching and the learning side is kind of taken as a given. Like, yeah, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll put the information out there and people will learn. It just happens. Um, yeah. And by the same token, there's all of these conversations happening online where people are struggling with teaching their students and they're struggling with, with keeping students in their classrooms. Um, and as we're having more conversations, uh, especially around diversity and HEMA and, and things, you know, you have classes that are like, my school cannot keep a woman in classes to save its life. We have horrible turnover when it comes to, uh, to women and members of other like marginalized and, and vulnerable populations. What's going on? Um, and, and it felt like teaching was one of the really big gaps there that we just weren't really addressing, that people would be like, well, you know, um, you, need to, you need better representation of women and, and events like Give a Girl a Sword have been really wonderful in that and then kind of bringing people into the space initially. 
Um, but retention is much more based on on ongoing school culture and and the learning environment itself. Uh, and that kind of crafting of learning environment is a skill mm-hmm. and and one that uh, we often don't talk about as a skill. We think about it as something that just sort of happens. Yeah. Um, and so what I wanted, what I really wanted to do with the book was kind of demystify a chunk of that process and go, no, 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 your, your learning environment is a thing that you built. It is, there's an active process involved in determining the culture that your students come into and the, the psychological and the physical environment that they face as they learn. And you can do that better if it feels like it's not currently serving them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really my biggest goal with the book was, was to just kind of put out into the community, hey, guys, this is a thing we can do. Uh, and here are some of the ways that we can think about our training culture and think about our students' perspectives and our students' experiences and make sure that what they're feeling uh, and seeing in the classroom is what actually facilitates their learning. Um, and, and so it's that's very awesome. like culture building 101. Yeah. So that's addressing yeah. two problems at the same time, isn't it? Is how do we get people mm-hmm. to learn better? And that's, you know, they feed into each other, get people to stay making mm-hmm. them comfortable. Um, by yeah, making, you can't, you, know, you can't learn if you don't want to be there. Yeah. You can't learn because you're not, yeah, you know, exactly. Um, so yeah, make people love the space and be feel like they're part of something, uh, mm-hmm. and you do that by making them feel comfortable. And uh, you know, part of that is like letting our guard down a little bit and let letting yeah. go of that perfectionism and just. And that's why you end, that's when you end up like you know you you've got a good club culture when it feels like a family in like. Yeah. You've got those very strong people. Um, okay, I have to stop questioning you now. My interrogation is over. Uh, let's see what the folks at home want to ask you. And there's been lots of things down here. I'll just go through them. I saw Sam was saying stuff. Uh, yeah, so this is interview number 30. <laughs> homesteading. Yeah, that was. I remember the homesteading era. Uh, I miss it. It was so simple. (laughs) All the plant mums appeared. Uh, Great examples of how limitations lead to great opportunities with good leadership. Uh, Physical archaeology. Yeah, that's another good way of describing it. Knuckle guy. We have a good base point, but no one to tell us what the end goal is or should be. Our goals, are, I think he's talking about HEMA when we're talking about HEMA in general. Yeah. Right in this. Um, our goals are different than the original masters, so it's up to our club's members to make what it means to us. This conversation is brilliant. Nice shirt. Kaya, what shirt have you got on? Uh, so I have my Team Mimosa shirt. Ah. Which explain, explain. is... Uh, so Team Mimosa is sort of uh, an... It started as a bit of an in-joke, and now it's like an informal little group within North American HEMA. It was started by uh, Lisa Lozito and Joe Cerrante, who are both out on the okay. East Coast. Um, and and it was just sort of a friends who like supporting nice things and also drinking and doing swords. Um, I get behind that. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah. And, and, and over time it's, it's turned into like kind of a micro community uh, within Hema. We've got a, we've got a Slack channel and we've got t-shirts uh, yeah. and they've done things like um, financially supporting events like Big Gay Sword Day. Um, it's a society. So, what you've developed is a society. Basically it's, it's yeah. a, it's a wee little society uh, that, that has kind of ended up being a space for uh, for empowering women and queer folks and other people that uh, don't generally have as much of a voice within within HEMA and and doing so not as like a this is a big serious mission and we're going to do events and so on and stuff, but just being a space where you've always got friends, where you've always got emotional support and where you know. If if you're struggling to to get the resources to go to an event or to be part of something, you can people will kind of come together and and facilitate that. So Team Bamosa are absolutely wonderful people. Um, I got kind of adopted by them about a year ago, uh, and I haven't looked back. <laughs> Aww. Uh Robin says it's the truth. Talking about your your training space, if you can pull it off, having your own space to train is huge. Miss mm-hmm. uh, Merida says truth. Uh, Lisa says, I've been seeing mentions of it in martial arts and sword arts outside of HEMA too. I think she's talking about your book. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's message goes beyond HEMA. It's, uh, Sam says, I really recommend Kai's book. Uh, Cats and Swords, which is Dan, I think. Uh, googly Eyes Dan. It's brilliant for any kind of physical instruction. Yeah. Uh, brilliant for guiding community through go- growth as a leader. Uh, Sam again, most martial arts or combat sports, all combat sports have an established culture that people join. HEMA is so new that we are inventing the culture as we go. (laughs) Oh, uh, Red Herring J says, where is this book available? I had to pretend to pay attention for a meeting for a bit. Well, it's on Amazon, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, Fear is the Mind Killer. Yeah, it's on, um, it's pretty much everywhere. It's on Amazon, but it's, also, uh, the publisher I went through um, is set up so that you can order it from your local bookstore if you want. Uh, yeah, if you would like to give money to independent booksellers, please do. Um, that. <laughs> Go to a local yeah, bookstore and order it in. Yeah, but, uh, but if that's not an option, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and all of the big online stores have it, so that's great. Okay. Four humors are all mimosa now. Uh, oh, you got a new edition coming out apparently. Uh, so I, I put out. This was sort of a joke, um, but it actually turned out quite lovely. <laughs> um, what I, uh, what I decided to do for the one-year anniversary of the book being published uh, is I put out a hardcover. Um, right. Because the the original, which I just realized I have sitting I here, see it behind you, is mm-hmm. a big pink squishy paperback um and there were uh, there were comments and 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 so on at the when it first came out about it being kind of all you know girly looking oh, uh, did you bring out in tactical black or something i saw i did <laughs> so the hardcover <laughs> so edition is officially book. is officially the tactical edition uh it yeah. is a matte black hardcover i've Stripped all of the uh, all of the art off of it. It just says "Fear is the Mind Killer" in big block letters. Uh, it's actually quite nice. Like I, 
I, I got a copy in in person. I grabbed it. and I was like, oh, man, I actually like this. And I made it as a joke. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's turned into this wonderful thing where uh, like one of my uh, one of my friends picked up a copy and has started uh, and has converted it uh, with some strapping into basically uh, a buckler, which she calls a bookler. <laughs> Um, and, and, and has committed to actually using it when she fences. Um, and, and, a, and a couple of other friends, one of my friends wants to like, you know, put, put like the, the Molly webbing that gets put on tactical backpacks and things onto it, or like maybe mount a rail for a gun scope. Uh, so it's turned into this like weird, lovely arts and crafts project. Um, <laughs> That makes me so happy. If if anybody does stupid tactical shit with their book, I want to see it. It will bring my heart joy. Yeah, um, see that. And the flip side of that, that that's, that's a little bit more serious, is that, like, martial arts has a toxic masculinity problem. They're, 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 right, who knew? Um, there is a real, there is a real resistance. In, in some circles to stuff that's seen as, as feminine or, or weak or, or not serious or martial enough. Um, and like the people that believe that are also often the people that would benefit the most from reading books like mine. Um, so as, as much as the tactical edition is a little bit tongue in cheek, it also yeah. does mean that there's a version out there that fits the, the aesthetics and the expectations of people that are more in like, you can that it side of our community. Yeah, it's it's something that might sneak it in under the radar or at least not be as, you know, intensely off-putting as, oh, look, this big pink thing with a lady on the front. Um, so, so, yeah, that's a thing that exists. <laughs> See, I did, I, honestly, the book, just it just looks like a purple book with a kick-ass person on the front. It, you know, I didn't even realise at first that it was, it was you. Uh, it's just a person doing punchy kicky things um yeah. sam says can i just say i love she-ra and it's all badasses with glitter absolutely we need more she-ra is the best <laughs> <laughs> kaya is adora full stop is that a character yes uh, uh adora is one of the main characters in she-ra and i've had multiple friends message me within like 20 minutes of watching the first episode and just be like it's you it's how you. did this happen <laughs> which I which I take as an enormous compliment. Oh, I haven't seen the new the new edition. I only know it's in the eighties. It 80s. is really really good. I highly recommend it. I, I've been told I have to watch it. Um, yeah, uh, Sam. Uh, yeah, hopefully this will record. So um, fingers crossed. Instagram doesn't do a dirty on me. Any more questions for Kaya, folks? It's just the whole Akaya adoration going on it's at the just, moment. It's just gleeful <laughs> chatter, which is really lovely. <laughs> um, we've got 15 minutes left. Uh, just a fair warning. Uh, it does give me a two-minute countdown at the end, but the last few times I've done this, it's just cut off. So we might not get to say bye-bye and everything. Um, Good to know. Yeah, so it might just uh, randomly cut off halfway well not halfway through but towards the end it might just not give us a proper mm -hmm. warning um on the subject of um uh lgbt community and being inclusive and all the rest of it i think valkyrie were kind of like 
at the forefront of that movement before it became a every single club is like you really have to mm-hmm. have this this has to be part of your culture kind of thing and that this it's only now that yeah. it's it's starting to become uh the norm that mm-hmm. don't put that message out there you're doing yourselves a disservice because you're limiting the number of people coming through the door um but i remember when i when you st- when you opened up the space and uh you know i was a different person then i didn't know the things that i know now and i saw you mm-hmm. had a sticker on the window and it said this is a safe space and i kind of thought well, what does that mean because you know being uh, had to look for a safe space or hasn't ever sort of thought about the fact that i have had to look for a safe space um i thought what does sorry that mean? friend like, can it you sounded to me sorry you just like, cut out for a second there sorry so it was just you know i remember the first time i saw that you guys were doing that and you put the rainbow flag outside your door and i was like well that's cool but why are they doing that and it's taken right. me you know like the five years from when you opened and started doing that to now and now it's like of course you do that duh but it's you know it's taken the five years of sort of educating myself and being educated mm-hmm. by people like yourself to to get the message and realize that um, you know the majority of people don't have to don't have to uh think about um whether they fit in to uh any kind of environment like is this right for me they just do it mm-hmm. like oh i'll do that uh, they don't have to think about whether they feel safe or not and everyone's sort of definition of safety is more is you know it, it varies depending on who you are yeah. so like my initial my initial take safety was like oh is someone going to like literally attack them but of course now we've got like in new york you've got literally the new york police are grabbing young trans women off the streets and yoinking them into vans yeah. so you know that is literally you know what we're um sort of what we're up against but i mean safety can be all kinds of things it can be everything from mm-hmm. being attacked and murdered to like microaggressions and just not seeing yourself represented and not feeling mm-hmm. welcome um so i mean you've been ever so patient all this time uh, keeping the message going and you just sort of like saying I'm just gonna keep being you know who I am and who we are and uh and 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 doing our best to welcome uh the LGBT community into our club what um I'm not gonna say you know how can clubs become like you kind of thing because you're just leading by example but um do you think you know club obviously all the other HEMA clubs are kind of going down that route and they've got the benefit of people like yourself mm-hmm. blazing that trail. Do you think we're doing enough? Or do you think there could be Sorry, you... more effort in general? Sorry, which do you get to? You cut out at the worst time. <laughs> <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> uh, it, you had just started asking your question. Oh, no. Right. Okay. Are HEMA clubs doing enough to be inclusive? I mean, they're starting the process now. I think, they, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they, they've got it. They've got the minds. They're, they're starting to get the, the, the they've 
the growth mindset, the idea of what inclusivity is and why we do it. Um, do you think that we that other HEMA clubs are doing enough or is there more that they could be doing to make themselves more welcoming to minorities? I mean, I think we could all always be doing more, you know, um, mm. e even, even, even with, um, with Velcro, where that's been like a real focus for us for, for at least five years, um, mm. we still catch ourselves, um, catch our, catch our blind spots, catch ourselves falling short. Uh, you know, a really recent and concrete example with us is um, during uh, during the renewed interest in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the last uh, the last period, especially after the death of George Floyd. Um, we were looking at the HEMA community, and we were looking at our space within the HEMA community, and being like, "Man, our school is white." Fuck, you know, um, especially <laughs> especially when we look at the leadership and and it. Consciously or not, one of the messages that we as a school were sending is that, sure, you have women in power and sure, you have queer people in, in positions of authority, but authority is still white. Yeah. And that's, oof, you know? Um, you say, this is for white people. So I think, yeah, uh, or, or at least, you know, it was, oh, no, no, people of color definitely participate. We just happen to not have any of them in authority. And that was the exact yeah. problem that I was seeing with, uh, with women when I started. And I know what it feels like to, to look at a, at a school and be like, ah, there's no place for me at the top. Um, and, and recognizing that, you know, that I'm, I may be doing that to other people is, is a hell of a kick in the teeth. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think maybe that's what I want to emphasize for, for other HEMA clubs as well as for ourselves is that this isn't a, this isn't a one and done thing. It's not like you go, all right, cool. I, I slapped the pride flag on the window. I've got, you know, a woman, a person of color and a trans person on my board of governors. This is great. We're good to go. I have a code of conduct. Everything's set. Um, it's a, it's an ongoing process of learning and it's, it's a mindset. It's about, recognizing that you are here to serve your community and recognizing that you are here to serve your students uh, and being on the lookout, especially for the needs and perspectives of students who are not exactly like you. Um, and as long as you're, as long as you're listening to what, what they say, whether in your own school or outside of it, if you, don't have a large population of, of the groups you're looking to serve, as long as you're actively examining what you're doing and, and going, you know, could we, could we do better? There's always going to be room to grow and there's always going to be opportunities to, to tweak and grow and improve. And I find that really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people that definitely believes that stillness is death, that, that if nothing is changing, if you're not learning, then you have fucked up. Um, yeah. so it's cool that this is a, this is a thing that never ends. Yeah. Um, because it is. And I think that at a, at any point that we are good enough, uh, that we are, we're done learning, we're done growing, we have met the needs of everybody, uh, then that is the point at which we really stop serving our community. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's the same as like, you will never fully understand HEMA. You will never win exactly. the, the 
uh, yeah. you will never <laughs> be, and you know, you, it's just it's just a continuous process. Like he maintain is maintaining an environment, and that involves weeding yeah. out and checking things and che- uh, making sure everything yeah. is in place. Um, just re- want to read out some of these comments because people are saying cool stuff. Um, oh my god. Loads of stuff here. Uh, I can listen to Kai all day, says Robin Saw. Sam says, love you both. I'm blissed out listening to you talk. So much love. Just the worst, says Kaya. How can we support what you do? Um, oh, we've got a question here from Claire. Claire Beans, very, very quickly, because uh, we've only got five minutes left. What was the moment when you felt real, like this is your career now? Was there a defining moment for you? Um, I, it still catches me off guard every once in a while. I still kind of stop and look around, if I, especially if I'm at an event or, I'm, or even I'm doing something like this, and I kind of go, man, I'm getting away with it. People are just letting me do this. <laughs> okay, you know, moments. Syndrome. Um, <laughs> the, one, the one that I can think of where I kind of started to believe that this was something that I got to keep doing uh, was a couple of weeks or a couple of months maybe into having the school, into having the space. Um, and we'd close down for the evening and I was there by myself and I was mopping the floor. And there was something about physically taking care, something about physically taking care of my own space that made it feel more real. Um, and going, man, yeah. This is this is my training floor. I get to mop. <laughs> a, very humble, a very humbling task as well. It's like you know, it's not like just about being the leader. You got to do everything, even mop the floor. Um, yeah, and that really kind of that's the real shit. You know, is yeah. is is the mopping and the admin work and the problem solving and the tearing out your hair about how to how to make ends meet or how to solve a particular teaching problem or a community challenge. That's the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the teaching is great. I love the teaching. I love getting to go to events and, and, and meet new people and all of that. that. That feeds my soul. But the work is kind of all of the mopping and things you do behind the scenes to, to glue it all together and to, and to make the space or the, or the community function for others. And I think it's really important to stay grounded in that. Okay, very quickly, Princess Leia says the book, talking about your book again, the book was also really helpful as a beginning student in sorting out partnering with scary tall guys and understanding my own learning and place in the space. So these are things that, you know, instructors may not even think about, you know, that Mm -hmm. that are really important for people coming in. Claire Bean says, big gay Mm -hmm. sword family. Quiz are here, steal (laughs) yourselves. Steal is provided. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Valkyrie shone a bright rainbow light for the rest of us. Uh, Sam says, not to insert myself into this, but both of you were absolutely foundational supports for me five years ago as a queer public figure. Um, We love you, uh, Sam. We love you, Sam. And Robin says, your presence has made it easier to promote and support the women, non-binary and LGBTQ plus in our community. Um... Oh, just a reminder, Kaya has a Patreon if you want to support her that way. We've not yeah. got the minute, two minute <laughs> warning come up yet, but it will soon. 
Uh, mm -hmm. Sam, again, it's not a one and done thing. It's an ongoing process of learning, looking for the needs and perspectives of students who are not like you. Yes. Robin Saul, when you stop growing, you start dying. Uh, just a, yeah, for, uh, the Patreon reminder. Lisa says we all love Sam. Yeah, we do. We all love Sam. Um, yeah, we do. I, at, this, at this point, I would normally announce my next guest, but I didn't write it down. So it's a mystery. <laughs> I will, It'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise. So I, I've got the guests booked up until the end of August. Um, I still have some slots Wonderful. left, so I'm waiting for a couple of people to. And even when I go back to work, I'm gonna carry on doing this anyway because I really like I really like doing this. Um, thank you. We've got any more quick questions for Kaya before we get thrown out by Instagram? Yeah, we're mystery guests. Oh, come on. What are we doing here? Oh, we're... very, 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 very quick question for you. Um, you train in minimal gear at Valkyrie. Yes. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone wear anything more than a mask. Um, how... Uh, what what are your well? Give us your three top tips for doing that safely. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so the biggest and important one is uh, teaching your students how to calibrate force appropriately. Right off the bat, teaching them how to be able to tell how hard they're hitting somebody and whether that's appropriate, uh, so that they can adjust for the context they're in. Uh, the second one is building trust between community members uh, so that students can give each other experiencing so that they can go, hey, stop, that's not working, or hey, I don't feel safe. Um, and, and the, yeah, that's really the big ones is honestly calibration and trust. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what you can do when people have fully taken responsibility for not only their own safety, but also the safety of others, when they just recognize that that is part of the game. Um, mm. And when they are actively invested in developing the physical skills they need to help keep each other safe, as well as the, the emotional context to do that. And that translates really nicely into fighting. You know, if you, if you know exactly how hard to hit somebody to, to show them that you've hit them, um, you're also getting damn good distance control and timing and precision with your targeting and all of that good stuff that we often struggle to teach. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a kind of self-reinforcing process that way. And that also feeds into the community building and the environment building that you, we were talking about earlier. And we've got 18 Absolutely. seconds left. So I will say thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> it's yes. been lovely to, to have you on the show. Um, Thanks. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Go to at Swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net for information about our event or look for our Facebook page, By the Sword.